Wow, thank you, Craig and Raina and Ben. Isn't it awesome to sing, you guys? Man, I know for me, I'll never take that for granted. Such an awesome time to come before uh, the Lord. As we get started this morning, I have a question for you. Have you ever, or maybe are you currently, facing a situation that just seemed impossible to overcome? Have you ever, or maybe are you currently, facing a situation that just seemed impossible to overcome? Maybe that's a diagnosis from a doctor. Maybe that's a challenging relationship that you're in that just seems impossible to move past. Maybe for some of you in this room, you've lost your job and you can't find another one. Maybe there's mounting financial debt coming your way and and it's leading towards bankruptcy and you're not sure how to pay the bills and, uh, and make ends meet. And for others of you, that might mean that someone that you love so dearly is not with us anymore. And if that's you and you relate to one of those things, you're in good company because all of us have or will face a giant like that in our life that seems impossible to overcome. And today we're going to continue in our journey through the Bible, and we're actually going to go to a familiar story, David and Goliath. And we're going to talk about when David faced a giant, he became a rat. Yep. When we face giants, God wants us to be a rat, and I'll tell you more if you hang out with me for just a little bit. And so let me catch you up to where we are at this point in the text. The Israelites were in the land that they were promised. God had promised them land. They had inherited this land. And they were growing in number to the point to where um, they needed some uh, officials to kind of help them work out some disputes. So Israelites are hanging out in the land. They're led by a guy named Samuel. And Samuel is uh, responsible for that group. And people keep uh, arguing about things. And so Samuel um, appoints his two sons to be judges to help them solve disputes among them as they continue to get bigger and bigger. And these two sons of Samuel's eventually became corrupt and people did not, uh, did not want judges anymore and they're looking around at other neighboring countries and saw they were led by kings and so even though Israel was led by God, the king, that wasn't enough for them, they wanted to have kings like their neighboring countries around them and so they said, please Samuel, name us a king. And so Samuel, the leader, is looking around, and he names and appoints a guy named Saul as the king. And Saul is about a head taller than everybody else and is a warrior and all that stuff. And so he appoints Saul. And so Saul now is the king of the Israelites. The Israelites are hanging out in the land that God has, has, uh, has promised them, and they're there. And during this time, there's a group that's an enemy of the Israelites called the Philistines. And the Philistines had already come into Israel, had already taken the Ark of the Covenant, and already run away with it and been using it to worship their gods, and God inflicted plagues on them, so they returned the Ark of the Covenant. So there's this repeat offender now that's coming back again. And so here's the Philistines coming in, and they knew the land the Israelites were were, uh, living in was promised to them by God. They knew it was theirs, but they wanted it anyway. And so the Philistines are coming up and marching up with their army, and then uh, King Saul heard about this, and King Saul got his army together, and then they met together. And that's kind of what's setting up our story a little bit. Let me show you what that would have looked like. This is the Valley of Elah, um, where they would have met. And if you look on that far side up there, it says Philistine camp. That's where the Philistines on the southern ridge would have been coming up to try to take over the um, Israelite territory. And then the Israelite camp was was there, and then the uh, uh, Valley of Elah, or Elah Valley was there in the middle. It was about a half mile apart. 
And so it's about a half mile apart, and these two um, armies had just met each other, and they're shouting and screaming at each other um, from that distance. And the text tells us they actually had been doing that for 40 days. So imagine, for six weeks, for 40 days, you get up, and you're in the Israelite camp or the Philistine camp, you get up, you put on all your armor, get all suited up, eat some breakfast, you go out there, and you stand out there, and you're shouting back and forth to each other, and then the end of the day is over, and then they go back, and then they put their armor on again, and then they go to sleep with their armor again. For 40 days, they had been deadlocked, because if either one of those armies would have come down into the valley, they would have been attacked by the other side and lost the strategic advantage. And javelins in that day were a, a well-known uh, uh, weapon of warfare that people would use, and a javelin was deadly within about 30 meters, which is about the size from that wall to this wall. So they were so proficient with a javelin, at about 100 feet, they could throw that javelin and really, get, uh, really kill somebody. And so they didn't want to move. And so what they decided to do is they said, let's send one of our best warriors from the Philistines, and you send your best warrior from the Israelites, and let's meet up, and let's, let's have this thing out. And that was called single combat back in the day, and so you would send your champion, a champion was basically a middleman, your best warrior, and you would come up against each other, and those two would battle. And whoever won in that battle, the army that lost would serve the army that won. And so the Philistines are coming up trying to take over the land that Israel was promised that was their land, totally their land. Philistines knew that, but they came up and they said, we want it. And Israel was like, uh, all right, I guess we're going to have to fight for it. So that's a little bit of where our, our story is at. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17, and we're going to read this account of who the Philistines chose as their champion and who God had ordained and chosen for the champion for the Israelite army to fight on their behalf. First Samuel is written by Samuel, the guy again that was responsible for this, um, for the group of Israelites. And I'm going to read sections of this because there's a lot here to this story and I'll summarize some for us as well. And so turn your Bibles, First Samuel 17, I'm going to be reading out of the ESV starting at verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Let me stop there for a second and just tell you what that means. A cubit was the distance from your elbow to the end of your finger. Elbow to the end of your finger, 18 inches. And so if you had six of those, six times 18 is nine feet. So six times 18 is nine, uh, nine feet. And then a span is six inches. So six cubits in a span, Goliath was likely nine feet six inches. Because people don't, uh, some scholars are arguing over that because people's arms were different lengths. So he could have been nine foot nine or nine foot four, but you get the idea. He was a really, uh, really big guy. And scholars argue over this. It's possible that Goliath had a disease called acromegaly. Acromegaly was a disease that he might have had in his pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland, if you have a benign tumor on that pituitary gland, it actually causes you to keep growing. There was a guy in the 20th century, Robert Waldlow, uh, was one of the uh, world's tallest men um, in the history of recording that kind of stuff. He was 8 foot 11 when he died, and he was still growing at 22 years old. And so he was 8 foot uh, 11, and so it's possible that Goliath would have had a disease like that. And if you look close, you could also see that he has thick glasses on. Typically, when there's this tumor on your, uh, on your pituitary gland, it was also known that your eyesight was also bad as a, as a part of that uh, disease. So it's possible he had that. He also came from Gath, and Gath was a place of very big people. 
uh, very, very big people. And so, and we'll learn in a second a fun little fact that David picked up five stones because Goliath had four brothers. So we'll learn about that um, in just a minute. So let's look a little bit more, learn a little bit more. So the dude is big. I think we get that. Look at verse five. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So about 125 pounds of armor. And he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear's giant spear was like a weaver's beam, and a spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. It was about 15 pounds was the end of this spear. So imagine this giant spear coming at you and impaling people with it. He was a deadly warrior, and he was a champion, and scholars believe he had been a champion for 10 years, fighting a hundred men a year. So he would have killed probably a thousand men, and so yes, he was uh, very scary to look at. And his shield bearer went before him. So not only is this guy huge, and he's decked out in armor from head to toe, but he has this shield bearer with the shield in front of him, like a SWAT, you know, shield, riot shield going in front of him. As he's coming down that hill to make sure javelins weren't coming his way, he was to protect Goliath. So not only is Goliath huge, but he's got the shield bearer in front of him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. So he said, come down for a couple reasons. One is he was, they were up on the hill, right? And secondly, maybe because he couldn't see very well, he wanted people to come down and meet with him. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And I've read in other translations, they lost all courage, they were terrified, and they were gripped by fear. Here's a man that had killed a thousand men that was standing up there that was way above everybody else. And King Saul, it says right there in verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words, they were dismayed. Saul was in the corner with him, you know, just totally terrified. I mean, this wasn't like, all right, let's go back at it again. For 40 days, this guy's standing there, and Saul is supposed to be the leader, and he was gripped with fear. Meanwhile, God is working in the background. God is preparing his champion on behalf of Israel to come out and meet this giant. But he was preparing him in an unlikely place in the middle of a field. And so here's David I'm going to summarize uh, where David's at. J David is the son of Jesse, and he's the youngest of eight. So David likely, um, you'd have to be 20 years old to actually come up to, the, to battle. And so scholars believe David was probably between 15 and 17 years old, and he was between 5'2 and 5'4. And so you have this giant man, and then this 5'2 to 5'4 shepherd of a boy that's 15 to 17 years old. And un, unable to go to battle, his father sends him, Jesse sends him, to go check up on your brothers, bring them some lunch and see how they're doing and come back and report to me. And when David gets there and sees what's happening, let's look at what he says in verse 26, the second half of 26. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What I love about that is like he got spiritual on him, you know? You can almost see that in the movie where David would be like, all right, Goliath, 
Say that one more time that you're going to defy the armies of the living God. You can talk about this guy or that guy. You can imagine this little puny, you know, guy against this big giant. Go ahead and say that one more time and we'll just see what we can do to you, you know. But what's cool about a shepherd, these are rocks from the Valley of Elah that I picked up in Israel myself. I went to Israel two different times and I had an opportunity once with John DeCreiter, who's one of our elders, awesome trip, another time with Ray Vanderlaan. This is about the size these stones would have been and I picked these up from that same riverbed that David would have picked them up or maybe people would have filled up for tourists like me. But, um, but you're welcome to come down and see these and feel these um, because this is about the size of what they were. Now, a size of a rock like this with a sling, now David had been practicing over and over and over and over and over for years in the fields with the sheep. He had been practicing with a sling. And a guy like that can throw one of these at about, or sling one of these, excuse me, at about 100 feet per second is about how fast they could sling these. Now, if you take a 45 caliber bullet in a gun, that can go about 900 feet a second, but it's a lot smaller. They have the very similar stopping power. So a stone like this has a similar stopping power to a 45 caliber bullet, which would be a larger bullet than most police and FBI carry right now. And so David would have been deadly with a weapon like that, and he had been training and training and training for a long time. And so here's what he says to King Saul. He goes to King Saul and says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Now at this point, didn't matter how small David was, didn't matter how big Goliath was, if God was with him, God is with him. And so when facing giants, be a rat. R, remember your training. Remember your training. When Saul in a minute here tries to, to, to outfit David with all of his armor, David didn't need to go to that because God had used what he had uh, fostered in him and developed in him this ability to be a rock slinger. And so in our own lives, you know, David is remembering how God has delivered him from the hand of a lion and from a bear and all of that. It's, yeah, he's got that ability, but God uh, used him and protected him and protected his sheep against these predators. And so David is remembering his training. And so do you guys remember uh, Karate Kid with Daniel's son? Remember, it was like, you know, paint the fence up you know, down, up, down, and then he had to, you know, wax on, wax off, and sand the floor, and so when he got into battle, he was able to kind of use those things as he fought his enemy, you know, because he had been practicing that muscle memory came right back to him. And so for us, when we face a giant, let's remember our training. Let's remember all of those other times and those lesser giants that when we went up against something and God used uh, our, our, how he's wired us, uh, situations that he has led us through before, let's remember those times. The Bible all over tells us we, we, uh, that God wants us to remember how he's provided for us. Let's remember our training. And my question for you is, what does your training look like on a regular basis? What does your training look like? Are you in God's word? Are you, are you uh, praying? Are you surrounding yourselves with other believers? Because then when difficult situations or seemingly impossible giants are in front of you, we can remember our training. And so right after Saul said, God be with you, look what he did in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail and David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. 
Now, in our world, our world has a lot of armor it wants to put on us when we get in the midst of a battle. We go to self-help books to, to, to deal with stuff that we're going through. Maybe read a blog of somebody who'd gone through a similar problem. We Google when we aren't feeling well. We, we phone a friend, you know, for assistance or for perspective. And while all those things are helpful, and they can be helpful in the time, we need rock-solid, bedrock truth we can stand on when we're coming up against a giant. And so, number one, our remember your training and two, we need to arm ourselves with scripture. So when facing a giant, be a rat. R, remember your training. And A, arm ourselves with scripture and God's promises. You know, lately as I've learned of friends of mine that have gotten COVID or any type of sickness or coworkers or anything like that, uh, like we all do, we, we pray for them, right? And we pray that God gives the doctors wisdom to be able to properly diagnose what's happening. We pray that the treatment that the doctors wisely prescribe, uh, you know, will be an accurate treatment for them. But then what do doctors do at that point? They prescribe, they, they treat, and then they wait to see if God is going to heal them. So yeah, doctors are great and all of that, but only God can heal. And so then I go on behalf of my friend or my coworker and say, God, please, in the power of Jesus, I come before you and ask you to please, may we find favor in your eyes to please heal this individual. We need to arm ourselves with scripture, arm ourselves with his promises, with his words to us, because his promises and his words are the only ones that are never going to be broken. See, for David, his eyes were so fixed on God and so fixed on what God would do for him and what he's done in the past that he wasn't intimidated by this, by this Goliath. And I think this goes against our American cowboy bootstrap and I got this on my, on my own and I'm guilty of that. Facing a problem, I'm always trying to think about how can I solve it and there's some of that. But how do we arm ourselves with God's words to go into battle? So when going into battle against the giant, remember your training Arm yourself with God's words. And since David remember his training, instead of Saul's armor, he went for the tools he'd used in the past. Look at verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David... Because again, he might not have seen him right away because A, he might not have seen very well and B, he was coming down from that path. When the Philistine saw, uh, looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistines said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Now he's probably referring to the stick of the shepherd, uh, the shepherd's staff that David would have been uh, carrying. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistines said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Now, David was pretty accurate with that sling, and he didn't need to get any closer to this, uh, this man killer. Then, the, then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And here's the best line, ready for this? That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. 
So why is he doing this? That all the earth may know that there is a God. And that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet with David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell his face, he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Yeah, I'll bet they did. Yeah, get out of here. You want some more of this? Uh, I got some more stones in here, you know. Back off, you know. Now, we don't have the privilege or the responsibility of knowing what the outcome is going to be in a situation. We're called to remember our training when we face a giant. We're called to arm ourselves with Scripture, but we need to trust God with the outcome. Be a rat. When facing a giant, be a rat. Remember your training. Arm yourself with Scripture and trust God with the outcome. I think we've all met people that when they're in the midst of it and they're arming themselves with Scripture and they remember their training and they've turned down the armor because they're putting on the armor of God, that then they're in the midst of the battle and it's getting really tough and they're like, hey, Saul, is that offer still applicable? Can I grab just a little bit of that armor? Instead of completely trusting God with the outcome in the midst of that situation. And I would like to suggest if you don't trust God, you don't know him well enough. If you don't trust God, you don't know him well enough. The more we experience and read his words and his passionate, incredible, sacrificial love for us and his plan for us, the more we will experience that and the more we will trust, trust God. I want to invite you now to watch a video of a Grace Springer and a good friend of mine, Matt Hennessy, and his wife, who faced a giant and trusted God along the way. Check out this video. Hi, my name is Matt Hennessy, and this is my wife, Laura, and we've been a Grace Spring family members since 2017. So we met at Michigan State University in 1997. Really, honestly, from our first conversation, uh, we talked about the our individual desires to have families and then of course uh, when you get more and more committed in a relationship those individual desires become mutual desires and you start to envision what it would look like uh, to have a family. Fairly early on in our marriage um, we discovered that the giant that we were facing was infertility and we were young 20s so everyone around us, family, um, siblings, friends, were all getting pregnant and having families and we were ready and we thought certainly this is going to happen and we discovered it wasn't. And when it didn't just happen, um, the burden was in our heart of why isn't this happening and of course we had so many conversations. It felt yeah. like it was every conversation. We couldn't go out to eat, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't have a date without it coming up. It just enveloped our entire life. We just continued to pray and we just felt like, okay, God, we're 
going to give this to you and you don't want us to move forward with some of these recommendations that the doctors thought may or may not help. And that was scary because we didn't know what that meant for our family. Okay, God, you're telling us don't do this, but yet we're still not getting pregnant. And so we just had to open our hands and say, here you go. And we didn't know what that meant. So that was really tough. You know, as, as our hearts began to change from uh, looking at a natural family to going, are we going to have a family? We started asking these real questions into our heart and mind. And, you know, of course, you know, thankfully we love and appreciate one another, but we were still going, we feel like our family should be something more, something different. I had the opportunity in chiropractic school to do a chiropractic mission trip. We actually went to Bolivia. And just the connection with these kids and just the love and the compassion with these kids and just the simplicity of giving them a hard candy they were your best friend for the rest of your life. And it was such a blessing. And I told her, I says, the one souvenir I want is I want to bring home a kid. <laughs> and she, of course, thought that was a silly statement. <laughs> the whole rest of the trip, God just was moving in my heart. I had never even, we had never really even talked about adoption. And it was so interesting because he was thousands of miles away and he comes home and we talk about it. And it was just goosebumps to how God was moving with him and opening his heart and the same for me. When it comes to um, you know, making the, the choice, um, it, was a, it was a choice outside of ourselves because I had just graduated chiropractic school, which isn't free. I just bought a brand new office, it isn't free. We had just bought a brand new house, it isn't free. So all these other costs were, were burdening on top of us and we went, Lord, this is what you're calling us to do. So we took this leap of faith and, and God provided. And mm -hmm. by the time, uh, you know, Joshua was in our arms, everything was paid for. I don't know how, I have no <laughs> clue how, but everything was paid for. If you asked me to actually try to work back and you know, account the numbers, I don't know, <laughs> I just it just happened. The other blessing as well is uh, my Aunt Sue, my Uncle Nate, uh, have three amazing adopted kids, but their daughter is adopted from Guatemala. So it just felt uh, the Lord was speaking and saying, you know, look at this connection. You can adopt this child and he will immediately have a cousin that's 100% Guatemalan as well. And so that was a tremendous uh, blessing and, and a push for us. And that's where we pursued that route. So we officially had gotten all the paperwork done and then you get put on a waiting list. And it's typically months and months and months, two weeks onto this list and I get a phone call at work on May 26, yeah. 2006, and our social worker said, you have a son. In that moment, all the unexplained infertility and all the, the prayers and confusion, and, and it, it all made sense. It just, it was that pain didn't have a hold on us anymore. Every single day, we get to stare in the eyes, we get to tuck into bed, we get to give hugs and kisses to and giggle and tickle and have a wonderful time with an answered prayer. It's, it's such a gift, it's such a blessing. We're, we're, we're not worthy of that. And that's just another aspect of grace. We don't deserve to be able to have this clear of an answered prayer. We don't des we've not done anything to earn that. We just opened up our hands wide and said, Lord, this is the path you're taking us on. We're gonna keep going towards it until you tell us to stop. And oh, by the way, it stopped. In February 5th, 2007, we got him in our arms and we just went, yep, it all makes sense now. We got it. I, I really recommend that you just give it to the Lord and don't try to fight your Goliath on your own. He wants to come alongside you. He wants to help you. And those prayers 
don't get answered overnight. And sometimes they don't look how you anticipate, but it just, it requires a lot of patience and perseverance and just truly trusting God in, in every situation. Oh, what an awesome story, huh? Yeah, you can clap. And actually, uh, Matt, Laura, and Josh are sitting right over here. So, yeah. What I love about that story is with these guys is that um, there was a giant in their life, and they went before God and prayed and trusted him with that outcome. But what they were able to do is, is help a young, a young boy that had a giant in his life that he needed a family. And so they stepped out and saw beyond themselves. And I think often for us, we get so caught up in our own situations, we don't think about what's going on around the world and how people are really struggling. And Guatemala is actually one of the worst places that a child uh, can be raised. You know, about 50% of the kids in Guatemala are malnourished. And um, to be able to bring a child into a home like that in a loving way, and Josh is a rock star, he's awesome, really talented kid, and they fostered so many things in him, which is so incredible to see. Um, it's such a cool thing, and that's what you're going to hear a little bit more about today, is we, we're actually partnering with an organization in Guatemala, and we're going to be helping partner with some of these kids in these conditions, and so we're looking forward to, to sharing with that, uh, that with you in just a few minutes. But it's up to us to remember our training when we face a giant, to arm ourselves with God's words, and to trust him with the outcome, and the outcome is not always going to go the way that we want. It's not always going to be the hallmark ending. It's not always going to be that way. We might, uh, things might get worse. And all of us are going to face a giant that we are not going to be able to tackle on our own, and that's the giant of death. The story of David and Goliath, while awesome, it foreshadows an even better story with an even more incredible champion. And so when all of us here are on the sidelines like the Israelites looking at death with no way to defeat it on our own, God chose Jesus to be our champion, to go there and stand in front of death. And we celebrated this just a few weeks ago, that 2,000 years ago in 30 AD, on that Friday afternoon at about the sixth hour in the day, Jesus said, it is finished. And he forever conquered that Goliath on our behalf. And for those of you in this room or maybe watching online live or listening later on in the week, if you haven't gotten to the point yet where you've decided to make Jesus your champion on your behalf, please do that now. There would bring us no greater joy than to welcome you into God's family. Jesus goes on your behalf and says, I'm conquering death for you so that you can live in eternity with me. So when facing giants... Remember your training, arm yourself with God's words and trust the outcome because just like the sword of Goliath was pulled out from him, Jesus is going to turn death back on Satan because Jesus is coming back, right? Amen. Jesus is going to turn death right back on Satan. The weapon he uses against us, he's going to turn right back on him and he's going to put him in that lake of burning, burning fire forever. And as I close in prayer... Let's remember that Jesus has already won the war. I'm going to close with some familiar words from a song as I close in prayer. Please pray with me. God, you hear us when we call. You are our morning song. 
Though darkness fills the night, it cannot hide the light. Whom shall I fear? You crush the enemy underneath my feet. You are my sword and shield. Though troubles linger still, whom shall I fear? I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side. The one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. The God of angel armies is always by my side. My strength is in your name, for you alone can save. You will deliver me. Yours is the victory. Whom shall I fear? And nothing formed against me shall stand, because you have the whole world in your hands. In the matchless name of Jesus, amen.